everyone, welcome back to Not About Food, episode 22 of the Eating Disorder Recovery Podcast. I'm going to keep this intro short because this conversation with eating disorder therapist and fellow beat ambassador Kel O'Neill was really thorough and full of information, so I don't need to add anything else. Um, you can follow and contact us at NotAboutFoodPod on Twitter and Instagram, or you can email NotAboutFoodPod at gmail.com. If you want to be a guest on the show or have something to say about our show, you are absolutely welcome and encouraged to reach out. We have a coffee page if you want to donate spare change to help us fund recording equipment. Uh, and that is on www.ko-fi.com forward slash notaboutfoodpod. You can look in the show notes for content warnings. We recommend doing this before you listen so you can make an informed decision as to whether you feel able to manage the topics that come up because your safety comes before our listener count. And if you enjoy Not About Food, it'd be really helpful if you could tell your family, friends, colleagues, etc. about it. Share the link on social media and rate and review on Apple Podcasts as well so we can reach a wider audience. That's everything, I think. <laughs> Please enjoy my conversation with Kel O'Neill about weight stigma. So here we are. I've got Kel O'Neill. I'm very excited to do this interview conversation of sorts so I've not known Kel very long we were brought together as we're both ambassadors with Beat and we were doing some kind of talk a few weeks ago who was it for again uh we were doing oh we were doing the NHS lunchtime chat thing during Eating Disorders Awareness Week something to do with the NHS I thought it may be Health Education England but I might be getting confused anyway hi thanks for thanks for coming on um so Kel is really exciting to me as well because she's kind of done the trajectory I'm imagining for myself from lived experience to therapist, which is very exciting. So in a few days ago, I accepted my place at the University of Suffolk to study counselling. So that's official. Kel's already done it, which is cool. And can you tell us a bit about your lived experience and how you became a therapist? Yes, absolutely. And uh, to start with, thank you for having me. So <laughs> the, the older I get, the, the, the scarier it feels to talk about my lived experience because I realise how long back we're going. But I feel like that's relevant for context because some things have changed and some things have not changed in the eating disorder field in those years. So my eating disorder started, oh, shall we count backwards, somewhere around about 18 years ago or something like that. When I was at university um, studying something uh, that was going to take me on quite a different path as to where I've ended up, uh, when I unfortunately developed an eating disorder, I had struggles with using food in emotional ways throughout my childhood. So maybe to some degree it wasn't a surprise, but I think that the transition to going away to university maybe left more space in my life for me to be engaging with those unhealthy behaviours. And I was pretty fortunate, actually, that one of my university lecturers noticed that I was declining in terms of just my mental health in general, as, as well as my physical health attached to my eating disorder. And uh, she, um, shall we be polite and say, nudged me <laughs> towards accessing some support via the university and when that wasn't sufficient sufficient, and things continued to decline for me, eventually went to my GP and was diagnosed with an eating disorder and referred to the local eating disorder service. I don't actually know what my 
initial diagnosis was at that point? Because I'm aware that my GP wasn't especially educated about eating disorders. But knowing what I know now, I was probably at the time diagnosed with what would have been eating disorder, not otherwise specified, what we would refer to as otherwise specified for eating eating disorder now, um, and referred to the local eating disorder service, where unfortunately I experienced something that I still hear about today and find pretty heartbreaking, which was being told by a professional that I quote-unquote wasn't that bad because my physical health was not as significantly compromised as, as they felt it should be in order to meet the diagnosis criteria. I guess we're talking about here for anorexia specifically. Yeah, just going to jump in, actually. Is this something, um, obviously I don't, I work in mental health and I don't work specifically in eating disorders, but we, um, in my place of work, we do see people come in um, with eating disorders uh, and they're admitted for a comorbid mental health issue. And we've had a number of patients significantly underweight and seriously restricting um, their intake, especially upon admission to hospital because their life feels so out of control at that point. But they have their OBS done every day and people say, oh, well, you know, blood sugar is not that low or the blood pressure is not that low. So either one, they must be eating more than they're letting on. Yes, definitely heard that one. And also it means we don't, there's no need for physical intervention or any kind of intervention. And, you know, having had that myself, I just can't help but think, apart from the fact it's so invalidating. Also, why do we have to wait for someone's health to be a critical point to intervene? Do we not want to do something before it declines? It would seem obvious, but I think, to be honest, less and less so even as awareness seems to be increasing marginally with resources, I feel like more people are getting turned away for that reason. Yeah, I would agree. And I was, um, I very, very much had that kind of experience of, of, I felt that the professionals I found myself talking to very much felt I was lying uh, about the severity of my behaviours. I was underweight um, but I wasn't significantly enough underweight to be diagnosed with anorexia at that point. Bear in mind, back then the criteria did include a weight requirement as well, which technically it doesn't today. But I think most people's experience is that it, unfortunately it still does. And I had less than ideal care, shall we say, for the next four years, including a brief hospital admission. Unfortunately, I think there was there was really no pro- no no way to repair the relationship between me and the psychiatrist right from our very first conversation where I felt very invalidated by her I just took the message that I've heard so many people say to me since which is basically if you want the help you'll you'll need to lose more weight and from that I knew I needed help I knew I was struggling with my mental health in terms of my eating disorder but more generally my mental health as well and that that was the pathway to, to get that care. That was that was my understanding of it being the only pathway to get that care. And so I went away from that appointment and I was like, okay, great, watch me. And it made me significantly worse, or as a consequence of it, I made myself significantly worse. So I really think I, I 
could have survived my whole eating disorder journey with an Ednos diagnosis or an OSFED diagnosis and, and maybe never have fully developed anorexia. But the consequence of, of those interactions kind of led me down those paths, or at least that, that's my understanding of it from where I am right now. The um, just watch me thing hits home because I did the exact same thing. I probably talked about it on the podcast before, so I'm not going to like go into all the details. But I remember going, I had would see a psychiatrist maybe four times a year, and it was always a different one as well, having gone over to the adult services uh, adult mental health services when I was 18 and despite historic hospital admissions and stuff I was just there was nothing really much going on um, for quite a while but anyway I remember I was 19 so we're looking 10 years ago now and knowing that I wasn't doing too well and fearing my trip to the psychiatrist thinking they're going to refer me back to the eating disorder service they're going to put me on a meal plan they're going to do this blah blah blah. and I wasn't really sure I wanted that but I knew it was necessary at the same time I wasn't quite in that depth depth of relapse where I was adamant against all of it but anyway I went to see the psychiatrist and you know popped onto the scales and obviously I'm not going to share the number but I was underneath the threshold for the anorexia diagnosis and I'd previously been hospitalized for it and she said oh that's fine and I was like that was the catalyst for a really severe relapse um, because I felt like if you think that's fine if you think this is okay I've got to take this 10 steps further and when I saw her again a few months later well things were much much worse yeah yeah and that's exactly that's exactly my experience of it as well I went from the initial couple of appointments that happened when I was first referred to the next time I saw the psychiatrist. I at least did get some continuity of care. I did see the same psychiatrist. Um, and it was maybe a year later by the time I was uh, going back and they were, they'd were they gone from maybe, maybe I'd had two or three appointments in that time because I quote-unquote wasn't severe enough, to we need a hospital bed. And I, I really truly still believe and I've, you know, I've had a lot of therapy between then and now, that that didn't have to be the trajectory had my mental health in a holistic manner been taken seriously at those very first appointments. Yes, absolutely. So that's all pretty terrible. <laughs> However, you did go into recovery. How, how did that look? Because I think people assume when it comes to eating disorders, or at least anorexia the pattern is you go into hospital you come out of hospital maybe you do it a few times and then you 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 know you're in recovery and certainly you know that's not true in many many people that I know I think and people who have those experiences and the loved ones of those know that hospital isn't the be all and end all of recovery um and clearly the brief admission you had wasn't either so where did recovery start? So my, uh, my very brief hospital admission, which was uh, somewhere circa two days, um, ended because I chose to discharge myself. Unfortunately, my significant other at the time agreed with that decision and, and backed it up and I was allowed to leave. I spent the next six months sort of in limbo not really knowing what my options were, understanding that I was 
very severely unwell, but not seeing that really as being focused necessarily on my eating disorder, but my mental health in this more general sense. And I knew that I had to manage because eating disorder service clearly were not going to offer me the care that I needed, that the inpatient visit more than admission, the inpatient visit showed me that that wasn't the right setting for me. And it was, it seems to be that it was that, that kind of minimal level of care that I'd had where I'd been, had, had a meal pan thrust upon me and been told to get on with it basically, um, or hospital. And, and I knew that what I needed was somewhere in between that. And I kind of assumed wrongly at the time, knowing very little about the mental health system or, or eating disorder services, that once I went home, I would be offered some sort of talking therapy on an outpatient basis. And I thought, again, wrongly, that I'd just kind of skipped a step because I'd got physically so unwell so quickly and, and on their account unexpectedly. But it quite quickly became apparent that that wasn't the case and I ended up in this kind of limbo land where the eating disorder service didn't feel that they could support what I was seeking which was therapy for my mental health in this general way and the secondary mental health care services wouldn't work with me because I now had a diagnosis of anorexia nervosa so I was like falling between the two in terms of what I felt my needs were and what they were willing to offer me and I like hung out in this limbo land while somehow clinging on to completing my university studies for the next six, seven months. And then my partner at the time actually rang Beat and we'd we'd never accessed anything in terms of like charity support or support groups or anything up until this point. And whomever he spoke to uh, at Beat suggested, you know, is private therapy an option? And I come from a a family that certainly wouldn't have had the finances to even think about accessing private healthcare. So as daft as it sounds that I'm a few years into my experience at this point and it had not crossed my mind, there was no reason for it to cross my mind because it was not something that I'd ever really been made aware of. But I had a student loan sat in my bank account. So we were like, okay, well, let's, let's give it a go. And we contacted a whole bunch of local therapists and the vast majority replied and said no because the NHS were refusing me care. Obviously, the private therapists in their private practice didn't want to take the risk of working with somebody who at this point is quite physically compromised um, and is very severely emotionally distressed and may basically go against what the NHS psychiatrist was saying, which was kind of more of a risk management approach. And and really they were painting a picture that this was something I would struggle with for the rest of my life and that they were going to, you know, risk manage me for the rest of my life. But one therapist replied and she arranged a phone call with my other half and they had a chat out, out of the room, out of my earshot, Uh, because he didn't want me to hear another no and ultimately she said okay let's let's meet her let's bring bring her along we'll have a conversation we'll we'll see where we're at at that point and I can't even begin to explain how significant a moment can be other than to contrast the the moment that I met this private therapist against the moment that I met the NHS eating disorder psychiatrist because I left this first meeting with her 
which at that point wasn't even necessarily a promise of therapy. It was just like an initial, let's go see if we think that this might be an option. But I left that appointment with hope. And I, I honestly don't know if I'd ever experienced hope in my life before that moment. And within the next six months, bearing in mind that I was basically avoiding the eating disorder service at this point, not necessarily advocating, that's what anybody listening does, but that's the reality of the situation. Um, I weight restored within those six months and started to work on my mental health in this more general sense. And, And she was able to give me some context to where I was at, I guess, some sense of, okay, what's going on with your mental health is clearly is clearly being worsened by your eating disorder, but I can see that your eating disorder is a coping mechanism for everything else that's going on for you. We need to get some, some stability in, in terms of nourishment, because obviously your body's not okay, but we we can have weekly sessions to support you why that why that is happening. That might not necessarily mean that you're cognitively capable to you know go in and do any deep therapeutic work but this space is available to you if you want to use it and I did and that's that will be the end of this year that will be 15 years ago um and within a year I was saying I was recovered my my perception of what constitutes recovery has changed since then but but the idea that within Within 18 months of being told that I was, quote unquote, beyond help and being offered this kind of risk management approach to go from there to feeling like life is something I can live and I can get to a healthy and happy point is, I I want to say it's miraculous. And yet I get the opportunity to see other people go through that now as a therapist myself. So I don't think it is that miraculous. I think it should be everybody's experience. Yeah, I mean, I talk about recovery a lot, obviously, in what I do. And I have had the discussion with um, colleagues and patients alike that I believe recovery is possible for everyone. Not that recovery looks the same for everyone and the process is the same, but but the individual picture of recovery is possible for everyone. But I also hear, especially in the reviews and stuff with psychiatrists, and especially with people with complex motion needs and like or personality disorder, I hear doctors say, you'll be living with suicide ideation for the rest of your life. You'll always want to kill yourself to some degree. Where's the hope there? Yeah. How is that supposed to inspire you to try? Yeah. Uh, and yes, risk management seems to be the long term plan for these for these people without any consideration that recovery is doable and you know part of my job is to model recovery which I find you know in a way find a bit uncomfortable because again I'm just one person in millions who's lived with mental health problems and is now doing well but yeah there's there are genuinely people who think oh they're going to be ill they're always going to be ill they're always going to be a revolving door patient that kind of thing um and if you're a clinician with that opinion you have that little faith in your profession and that little faith in the individual of being able to create a meaningful life I I couldn't do that if I was that pessimistic I couldn't work in this job 
No, I, I, I totally see that. And I, I think I think lack of resources play a part here in so much as often professionals don't get the opportunity to provide within the structure of the NHS the level of care that clients would best benefit from. And so therefore they don't get to see the improvements. But that doesn't mean that the improvements aren't possible. Um, and I guess that's why, why my working in the NHS lasted for about a year before I abandoned chip to private therapy because, because I realised actually almost I felt like I was practising with an arm tied behind my back and I could see how the professionals that I had come into contact with as a patient had got to that kind of demoralised place and then, and then passed on that pessimistic outlook to me that's so dangerous I see it even in uh, student nurses who obviously come into the hospital for placement and how quickly they go from enthusiastic and hopeful to just slipping into the status quo of it and not questioning anything and just replicating what's been done before them and that's scared that really scares me actually because I wonder if my first year of working in the NHS has done that to me to any degree it's a horror it's a horrifying thought and I yeah I really don't want that to happen and to lose the passion and the hope again if that happened I wouldn't want to continue working in mental health I don't think no I actually I, I did my placement in NHS in an NHS GP setting when I was um, when I was doing my kind of qualifying course to be a therapist and <clears throat> and in that setting you've obviously got the kind of typical six to eight sessions and we're talking how they even group them I, I don't know if I agree with that but kind of the the less severe mild cases of mental health um, and, and often it, it was panic attack first episode of depression, those types of things, where six to eight sessions of therapy was was reasonably appropriate. And I have to bear in mind, probably patients were being screened as to whether they were appropriate for, for the new girl, if you like. Um, and then as soon as I found myself working with a more complex client who I realised that this six to eight sessions was just not appropriate for, and I started asking questions about, you know, is there, is there an option for me to extend? How do I refer this person to somebody else? Immediately, I realise this, this is what working in the NHS is going to be like if I stay here. And I stay long enough to, to have some experience under my belt to, to move beyond that. But pretty quickly realised it, it's so easy to get, to just get sucked into it and and to find yourself just seeing it as a job and I don't see being a therapist as just a job this is people's lives no seriously I mean I, I talk about it quite a lot I'm categorically not a therapist I think the work I do is akin to therapy to a degree and is potentially therapeutic but I am not yet a therapist and it's, it's kind of strange to know I'm officially going to be doing that at some point. It's really exciting, but it's just bizarre. Yeah, I cannot see this as just a job or the way I money. You know, I've come home from work really, really devastated before. 
at the system, at stigma, at funding, at all the things that I'm sure you witnessed in the NHS when you in your year in the NHS. And he goes, "Can you not just leave it at work?" It's like, no, because these are people; these are real human beings, and I see myself in, I see myself in them, I see my family in them, and it it's just it's too much to just leave at work and yet here I am going to university to do it on a long-term basis um it seems a bit counterintuitive in a way but I also obviously seeing the positive impact is what makes us stick to it and aside from not just being a job and a way of making money it's become part of my identity already uh, it, it, I think I I didn't I definitely wasn't there at, at your point in it, but I also never I never meant to become a therapist as as daft as that sounds. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I was going to ask, how did that ha- come about? Well, I I was at university studying criminal justice when I developed my eating disorder, and uh, and at the time thought I was perhaps going to work in the addiction field, uh, which, unbeknown to me at the time, is is not dissimilar. Uh, to to the kind of eating disorder psychology uh, but I go I, back and listen to the episode with my dad about eating disorders versus addiction anyone who's not heard that one yet carry on <laughs> yeah a- a- absolutely I mean you could you could go read my dissertation from university the first time round. I wrote about heroin addiction and you could literally just go replicate it and use the term eating disorder and the majority of it would apply so so Maybe it's not as surprising as I think it is that this is where I ended up, but it wasn't the plan. And after graduating, I actually got offered a teaching role at my local college, which included some qualifications towards teaching. And so I thought, okay, okay, I guess this is the direction I'm going to go in. Um, And didn't really give it much thought beyond that. And I was, you know, I was really in my baby first steps of, recovery myself at that point so managing a part-time teaching job and recovery was, was plenty on my plate for uh, pun, pun intended plenty on my plate for that moment in time but actually I'd been teaching at the college for about a year when totally unrelated got glandular fever uh, and had quite an extended period of fatigue and I'm sure should have been, could have been diagnosed as chronic fatigue. It lasted a couple of years um, at that point. And I ended up having to leave my teaching role because I, I, I physically couldn't. And as things started to improve from an energy perspective, and my GP was, was kind of encouraging me to, to do a little bit more to see what was I capable of, I... I went to do an evening course, just like a two hour a week for six weeks kind of evening course at the local university in counselling because I'd loved the teaching and obviously I do still teach as well. Uh, but I I found it really hard that as a, a college teacher slash lecturer, you might not really know anything about the students that are in your classroom. They might just come in, you teach them something and they leave. And I was really aware that I kind of was missing that one-on-one connection with people. And that actually maybe is relevant to the to this story is um, after after the person on Beats Helpline suggesting that we looked at private options, I did start volunteering with Beat 
Uh, so started to learn more about eating disorders and started to use my lived experience a little bit as well. And so I thought, okay, I quite like the the mentoring projects that I'd been involved with with Beat. So let's go try this evening course in counselling. Still not really thinking that was that was the plan. It was just a, a trial to see how much could I manage at that point. And I loved it straight away. And I was like, okay, I think this is the thing. And then I went back to university and, and retrained. And in that sense, I guess I never, I never did do what I intended to do at the beginning. I never worked in addiction services or criminal justice. So it almost seems like, I guess because of my age as well, almost seems like it must, it must have been in my first career, especially when I say I've been a therapist for nearly 10 years. But it, it, it is a second career in that sense. Um, and I also said when I was training to be a counsellor, so generally speaking, the rule is what Kel says she's not going to do, that's what she's going to do. Because I said what I wasn't going to do was I wasn't going to specialise in working with eating disorders. And now here I am in private practice working 99% of my clients have have an eating disorder or, or something on that spectrum. Um, so it was it was never the plan. Or well, I didn't know it was the plan. I feel like it maybe was the plan for me. I love that story. Like <laughs> I obviously you've told me a bit about it before, but it's just I love that full circle thing. Um and I'm sure especially with more people with lived experience going into mental health roles, whether it be the traditional roles or the increase in lived lived experience specific roles being created in the NHS I think even we're gonna the funding isn't gonna suddenly appear but hopefully people's attitudes and the general consensus of people within within the teams will be more compassionate and more insightful just for this from from that lived experience I really appreciate that we're hearing more about lived experience roles and, and and we and others with lived experience feeling comfortable to use that in a kind of strength-based way because when I was training as a therapist, talking 12 years ago now, um, that the field, the therapy field and the eating disorder field were definitely in a different place in relation to that. And I thought that I almost didn't think, I would say I was told (laughs) that I should maybe be quiet about my lived experience in order to transition into into this professional role. And I was quiet about it for a couple of years and I stopped volunteering for BEAT as an ambassador for a short period of time. But the reality is that a component of what makes me a good therapist or what I hope makes me a good therapist is my lived experience and having experienced less than optimum care and being willing to ask those questions and also being being willing to be questioned in that way as well being open with clients that if I'm doing something that isn't working for you I'm not going to be defensive about it and say that that means you're doing something wrong as the client Let's have a conversation about that and work it through. And I think my level of comfort with being willing to do that comes from having such negative experiences in treatment. Well, in my um, interview the other day for for the counselling degree, I was I talked about lived experience 
in it and the lecturer interviewing me was tough like he really made me do a lot of like on the spot reflective practice <laughs> um about it um and I think that's good because it was just a one hour snippet of how difficult this course is gonna be but no I will never be able to divorce my lived experience from my profession I don't think I'll be boundaried with it and I currently am boundaried with it um, and obviously as a peer support worker it necessitates lived experience and as a therapist it doesn't um, and I know people working in mental health who don't disclose anything and that's I think that's fair enough but you know I worked in a social care job and was meant to keep quiet about my lived experience despite working with teenagers with mental health difficulties and I couldn't I just I just can't like I feel too much <laughs> um and I know I know the worth the value of meeting someone who knows where you're at um and also seeing that things can change because for so many people they don't believe that so one of the reasons I wanted to get you on the podcast is something you did as part of your studies about weight bias in eating disorder treatment if you could elaborate a bit on that because what you've told me before is really interesting and not that surprising but absolutely needs to be talked about yeah, I, I, I'm totally on the same page with you. That I don't think there's anything shocking about about what it was that I did or found, and yet it all still seems like we need to be having the conversation. So I guess here we are. So um, a few years after qualifying as a therapist, I decided I was going to go back to university because glutton for punishment uh, in order to complete a master's in psychotherapy. So I did, did my postgrad in counselling and then went back and did um, master's in psychotherapy. And on the master's program, got the opportunity to do a research study, which which wasn't part of my counselling postgrad. And obviously, I had this experience that we've already talked about today of of essentially feeling like my eating disorder trajectory was impacted by people's perception of the relevance, the importance of my weight in relation to how much care or support. I could or could not get and the longer I've worked and the more people I've worked with the more I hear this story repeated in in similar ways and I think essentially what is inherent in this experience is this perception that anorexia is the quote-unquote most serious eating disorder and most common and uh, people see it to be the most common and people also associate it associated with being the highest risk both in terms of mental health and in terms of physical health and I know that in my journey the times where I perhaps presented the most risk to myself was not at the points when I was most medically compromised when I was most underweight because at that point quite frankly my body and my brain was closed down so much that I, I wasn't having any thoughts of harming myself or anything like that in, in ways that I was at other points in my experience. And so I knew for sure that even if medical risk maybe is most severe when you're significantly underweight, that, that mental health risk and, and, and 
suicide risk and self-harm risk. Absolutely, we're not tied to that in the same way. Although, as it turns out, the more that I, that I read about it, the more I came to realise that there is not much truth behind anorexia medically being the most risky either because arguably purging behaviours have the most medical risks attached to them. And so I thought, okay, I want to have some hard statistics about this because we, people with lived experience, have been talking about having this experience for years, feeling that if we're not significantly underweight, that we're dismissed, essentially. So there is no hard facts out there about it other than like anecdotal stories from us. Let's let's do some research. Let's look at how common this phenomenon is. So I put together a study where I managed to get 412 UK-based counsellors and psychotherapists and I asked them a series of questions to determine how they would respond to medical risk and how they would perceive suicide risk dependent on the body size of the person with the eating disorder so do they would they be would they say that they would direct somebody who was underweight to medical care when maybe they wouldn't direct somebody who was quote-unquote a healthy weight to medical care uh, and, and respectively along the same lines in terms of suicidality as well and 92 percent of those 412 participants showed a weight bias in at least one of the questions that I asked, which means that almost all therapists are probably without lack of knowledge because many people don't realise that therapists aren't necessarily educated on different topics of mental health. When they're training to be a counsellor, you're being taught to do counselling, you're not being taught about mental health. Um, so they're carrying all of their own pre-existing knowledge about mental health into those those roles um, uh, and are assuming that maybe they only need to send underweight clients to their GP to get their medical health checked out. And they're more likely to ask the suicide question to somebody that is underweight, despite us knowing that in all reality, people who have more impulsive behaviours, so binging and purging, would be impulse-led behaviours, would, be would be more at risk of self-harm and suicide behaviours. And so essentially, my research showed with great big flashing lights on it, yes, therapists are weight biased when it comes to the management of risk of clients that they're seeing with eating disorders, which I don't think is going to be shocking to any of us with lived experience. But I didn't quite expect it to be 92%. No. When you were saying, I was like, how many exactly is that? And I've forgotten the number. But um, that is an overwhelming majority. And I know that, like you said, therapists aren't necessarily trained in different mental health conditions. However, I can't, again, I can't imagine going into this job without a pretty decent understanding of mental health conditions either. When I was being interviewed the other day, the, the lecturer who was interviewing me said, you probably know more about mental health conditions than I do. But it's worth 
you know, some people obviously go into becoming a therapist through the means of studying a psychology degree first. But even then, it's not that, as far as I'm aware, you don't learn much about individual conditions. And if you want to, you're going to have to specialise, really. Yeah. No, I think... I think it's a, a real hole in the education process of therapists. And I, and I get that the majority of people training to be counsellors probably are not going to be working with severe mental illness, however we even want to categorise that. But, I mean, certainly in, in this past 10 years from where I'm sitting, the demand for mental health services has grown so much that people with any capacity to access private therapy are often choosing to do so. And I think I think in private practice we are seeing more people with more serious mental health struggles than we might have in the past because they're not being helped by statutory services due to long waiting lists. So maybe it was felt that it wasn't necessary way back when that decision was made that it wasn't part of the counselling curriculum. But I really think that that needs to be addressed and especially when it comes to eating disorders because of the physical risk associated as well. Yeah, I suppose that's the element that when people talk about, it's quoted as being anorexia as having having the highest mortality rate of all mental illnesses between the physical risk and the suicide and death by misadventure risk, combining them. But yeah, I mean, people go dismissed as you know they're not a physical risk because their weight isn't low as if there's not massive pressure on organs um and the risk of electrolyte imbalance and heart attack and all of these things not being possible as long as someone doesn't look or isn't below a certain bmi not even the bmi that was in the diagnostic criteria but an even lower more extreme thing um and i've known people since starting my job um who have such difficulties and have opted for private therapy because they can't get anything else and this again obviously this is anecdotal thinking about the people i've supported at work but again complex emotional needs personality disorders ptsd and eating disorders those highly comorbid presentations not being able to get NHS support or any any form of psychological input and thus going to private and then being turned away, much like from your experiences, being said, this is beyond my remit. And that's not to say it's they're wrong to say no, because you have to feel capable when it does come to, you know, trying to support someone who's really high risk. Um, but it does demonstrate a massive gap in what's available. And something else I've noticed as well that I didn't know about until I started working in the NHS is at least locally how much is put on charities to fill the gap too. So, for example, in East Suffolk, they're developing a group DBT programme, which is good that it's eventually existing, but people are generally sent to Suffolk Mind to do not therapy. It's just a support group. And I've done that support group. And the best thing about it was the friends I made in it. It was not 
thinking about it, the psychologist who ran it hadn't heard of DBT, which is a bit of a concern. Again, I think services such as Mind and obviously Beat, we're ambassadors for Beat, and so we do believe they have a place. But I think more and more people are getting referred to them by the NHS. And it shouldn't, the very essence of what the NHS, I'm going to say was, not is, should be people being able to access help. And I've said recently, if I'd gotten ill now rather than 15 years ago, I don't know what my outcome would have been. I don't think, I think it would have been a worse outcome. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I can definitely see that as well. I mean, I, I was accessing eating disorder services at a point where waiting times were like a few weeks. And obviously I didn't get the best of care when I was referred to them, but I didn't wait an extended amount of time to get the support that I did get. And I don't I don't know what it would have communicated to me had I been told there's a year wait or more than a year wait in some instances. And I think I might have felt even more desperate when I was then told that the support that I thought I was getting wasn't available. I think waiting lists for anything, any physical or mental condition, but obviously mental health especially, could probably contribute to an increased rate of suicide because people think I can't live the length of this waiting list without without anything and I I see I see it in patients who for lack of a better way of putting it they have they're impatient for things to get better Um, and recovery it takes a lot from the individual but obviously they should be able to get the professional help too and their hope is just dashed when that's not available and it feels like it's all on them and they don't want to wait until the help is there because that means enduring more and more of the hell they're already in it feels simpler for everyone to just quit and I I hate to say it's something I'm I see a lot now yeah and and it it's it's heartbreaking to me because I see the vast majority of my clients improve and I don't think I've got any exceptional magic tricks that I use with my clients that mean a higher percentage of my clients reach recovery than the statistics would lead us to believe do within eating disorder services or even just mental health in general. I think it's simply that I get to work with the clients in a way that is congruent with who I am as a professional, which includes my lived experience, whether or not I verbalise that to clients. And the biggest thing that I learn from my negative experience with the NHS and my positive experience with the private therapist was the importance of clarity of communication. So let's take something like being weighed. Nobody ever explained to me when I went to eating disorder services why I was being weighed, in what way they might think that was helpful, or why that might be important. So arguably I wasn't even given informed consent. So something that was at that point very triggering to me. And then simply having a conversation with a therapist, with my private therapist, you know, multiple years down the journey, and her saying to me, 
why do you think they want to weigh you? Why do you think they need to weigh you? And me thinking, oh, do you know what? I'd never even really thought about that before because I'm so inside my anxiety feeling because they just want to plunk me on the scale that I'd not, I'd not travelled to the next thought process. And having now done the training, I've done the CBT for eating disorder training. I'm not a CBT therapist, but I have done the CBT for eating disorder training. And I now understand that within CBT for eating disorders, the belief is that by regularly weighing the client, you are showing them that your weight doesn't massively balloon when you start to regulate your eating, that it's kind of a gradual process, which there's some truth to it. It usually is a gradual process. Your body can only do so much. Um, But nobody ever explains that. Nobody ever explained it to me and nobody's ever explained it to anybody else with an eating disorder I've ever spoken to that this is why we're going to do this. We're doing, Obviously, we're doing it for medical monitoring, and we're also doing it to, to kind of, I guess, to show you that your fear isn't true, that you're not just going to gain huge amounts of weight overnight, which is often what the anxiety in, in your brain is saying to you as you start to, to eat a recovery meal plan. And when I explain that to clients who are coming to me and maybe also accessing eating disorder services, all of a sudden going and being weighed it isn't anything that they enjoy or want or necessarily find helpful for the most part but all of a sudden it's less stressful because I simply explained some of what the thought process about that might be and I think because in the NHS it's client after patient after patient after client after patient go all of the time firefighting the space to have those seemingly nothing conversations that are actually so important has been lost in reducing the length of appointments and getting more people seen in the day because there's so many people on the waiting list. But those conversations that are so simple (laughs) might be the difference between somebody engaging with the support and then going off on their own trajectory and moving forward and maybe not needing years of support and maybe not being revolving door in and out of hospital but yet we've squished the appointments down when the NHS settings we've squished the appointments down we've lost that nuance in the conversation in an attempt to see more people but we're just we're just queuing people back at the back of the queue so it's just so short-sighted and I really think that that's the only thing that is significantly different between the care that's offered in many eating disorder services and the care that I'm able to give my clients and the care that helped me as a client as well is is that simple amount. That's not a counselling skill. I didn't need a degree to do that. I'd never heard of that rationale for weighing before. And I've been weighed hundreds of times. Um, so that's an interesting insight for me. And I don't necessarily agree with it. Um, it's interesting to hear it. But again, you know, I, I would have mentioned it on the podcast before is that one of the biggest most important catalyst in my recovery is my therapist saying okay I'm not going to weigh you anymore I know that's not right for everyone but the whole point was it was a person-centered thing we had already built a rapport and she trusted me to the point where she said let's just not weigh you anymore and her colleagues thought it was the most ridiculous thing she ever could have done not weighing someone with anorexia who had a history of hospital admissions and day patient admissions best thing I I don't that's another thing that if that therapist hadn't agreed to that 
what my recovery would have looked like. Yeah, and time, time is a massive thing. I think I'm very privileged in my current job that compared to the nurses and compared with the clinical support workers and such, I have the whole point of my job is to do one-to-ones and groups so I can give people that extended amount of time because my responsibilities aren't scattered all over the place with clinical clinical things like medications and depots and that kind of thing. Yeah, they, people, they want time, but it, it doesn't exist. I, I talk to colleagues who have been mental health nurses for decades and just they talk about the vast difference between what it used to be like being a mental health nurse and what it's like now. And that's one of the reasons I decided against going into that field, because that was the original plan for me, because I want to have that one on one time. I don't want to be just dishing out meds and, you know, not being able to invest time and energy into into a person. It just wouldn't be fulfilling at all. Isn't that something that we all need? We don't have enough of, of that in life anymore, do we? I think the, the pace of life is so quick now that everything is is that kind of how I was describing the NHS services is, is kind of a replication of life, that it's do everything bigger, faster, easier if there's, if there's an option to. But that's not how we're, we're social. We're social creatures. We want to feel connected. We want to feel important. We want to experience other people and be experienced and be understood and we don't get much of that in life anymore so of course people are queuing up for therapy in seeking that and in in thinking that's 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 the place that I'll get some of these needs met it should be such a basic thing that that we get in life anyway but there doesn't seem to be space for it you've highlighted something as well just now um, I find really important is needs being met bit, um, which I think is really important in therapy and mental health care in general, um, because often the coping mechanisms we're using that are seen as part of the problem, they're still meeting our needs in one way or another. And if your care isn't meeting your needs, then you're never going to overcome those coping mechanisms because they're still filling a space so that's yeah that's that's an interesting kind of like a <laughs> kind of built on something I already believed in and I think that's what the professional that chose not to weigh you did without realizing it so I I teach some CPD workshops for therapists and I'm working on some more substantial offerings as well but one of the one of the big things that I like to focus on is the importance of recognizing that knowingly or unknowingly to the client the eating disorder is a form of communication you know I was very much screaming initially in in terms of my mental health in general but ultimately in terms of the way I was presented in my body help me that's what I was saying as I got smaller and smaller I was saying help me because I didn't know how to ask for that help Uh, and I was I was seeking it in that in that way in that unhealthy way and so if in that position you access eating disorder services and you walk through the door and in most of our experiences just get plumped on a scale what the professional is doing is they're communicating to you 
via your unhealthy mechanism. They're also using an eating disorder process to communicate back to you. You're saying to them with your body, help me. And then they're saying, let's see, let's check your body to see if you need help. They're validating the unhealthy coping mechanism. So if you put that to one side and it either isn't part of it, if it's appropriate for it not to be part of it, or it's handled by somebody else, which is how I handle it in my practice. So I ensure that the clients are seeing their GP for medical monitoring or the eating disorder services doing the medical monitoring. Maybe they're seeing a private dietitian, whatever, so that those the eating disorder parts are separate from the therapy so I can communicate with the person, not with the eating disorder. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the whole process of being weighed does reinforce its importance and the valid- validity of your illness. And the idea of it being communication is so true. And this is another thing that I'm a struggle to challenge at work when, like, if we're in, um, we go have a group reflective practice session and there's this idea of so, so-and-so self-harms or so-and-so does X behaviour when their needs aren't met. And I've challenged that by saying, what is happening between needs not being met and the behaviour? Because it's not that simple a link. What does them not getting their needs met represent to them? What does it remind them of? What emotions are attached to it? Because it's so easy to see it as something that simple. And I think when you clinicians don't have time, it's drawing that conclusion and it being seen as um, the fault of the individual is the easiest, most straightforward thing to do. But once again, those behaviours are communicating something they may not even know it themselves and that's kind of what therapy is about but yes people are very very easy to dismiss you know cause and behavior as something simple I get asked very often when I'm talking from a lived experience perspective how have how have I managed the best part of 15 years without relapsing because as you alluded to earlier the the perceived story is that that you will cyclically throughout your life probably relapse and that has not been my experience I haven't relapsed once and I think that the the singular answer to that is I learned via therapy how to either meet my own needs or seek for them to be met without doing that through self-harm or through eating disorder behaviors or whatever it might be and so That's not to say that my life is always beautiful and roses and that I never have bad periods in my life because we all do, but that when they happen, I'm able to meet my needs or to seek my needs to be met in ways that don't require me to engage with unhealthy behaviours. But if people are on that kind of revolving door cycle of of only getting their needs met when they're at crisis point because they've self-harmed, because they're significantly underweight, because they're suicidal... Of course, the next time they need help again, they're going to use it. It worked. It gave them access to care. But then I've also seen people, you know, professionals recognise that. And so when the individual engages in such behaviours again, they decide we're not doing anything. It's really frustrating to see because there seems to be no middle ground for anything. 
And the idea is, well, we can't help them. This isn't the right setting for them. We don't provide what they need, but then what they need isn't available either. Um, but that's another soapbox for another day. Because <laughs> I, I will talk about this for hours if, if people would listen, um, and I won't force them to do that. My friends have to listen to me moan about this stuff as it is. So. I, suspect, I suspect the people that are, living, are listening and nodding their head are the people that also have already had this experience and figured out that, do you know what, this isn't about us when we are struggling. This isn't about the people that are struggling. This is about the fact that services aren't quite meeting needs at those points and and the people that get better are the people that either totally look out and get the help that they need by postcode lottery by chance by finances or they're those people that realize this is happening and go do you know what I need to figure this out for myself and go and find ways to meet their needs themselves and and move towards recovery. Absolutely this is this has been such a interesting insightful conversation because like I said at the beginning you've kind of done what I'm just starting and in a few years you know we both start started off as ambassadors for beat and stuff as well and yeah your your future me which is a very exciting prospect I'll be very happy to be like you in a few years time so shall we shall we shall we check back in a decade when you're 10 years into your practice and see where we're (laughs) at (laughs) yes hopefully Hopefully, exactly. Well, my my version of what you're doing is would I'd be chuffed with that, to be honest. <laughs> I would love to think that ten years from now, that those of us that are choosing to combine these two paths—the lived experience and the professional hat—we will have been heard enough that that the situation has moved on a lot. I'm feeling overall quite hopeless about the state of the world, but that that. Yeah, that little bit of hope because of the people around me and the people I've met through my work and definitely people such as yourself, that's where I do, I'm not in total despair about, about the future. So, and I need that right now. And it now. will grow. As, as you meet clients and you get to see clients move towards recovery, which I have, I have the honour and luxury to do in my practice, you, you see more and more hope. You know, in that sense, it's it's a very nice job to have because I do get to see people make change Uh, and it just it reinforces all of this with a more positive spin on it It shows how how it could and should be so hopefully hopefully some of the potential jadedness from the last year in the NHS will uh, will be healed from your experience of you supporting people in the coming years let's hope so let's hope so it's really strange to have faith and confidence in myself to be able to do this and definitely my last year as a peer support worker has solidified that confidence so I'll let you get on with the rest of your day Um, according to my laptop it is seven minutes to three that's not right it's nearly six (laughs) o'clock thank you so much I really hope we get to collaborate again as well working with you last time was brilliant and you never know, maybe I'll, when I start uni, I'll end up asking for help. <laughs> yes, but by all means do. And who knows, maybe we'll find a project to uh, to, to rectify the field together. At some yes, point let's do that. Let's do that. Okay, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Phoebe.